0: Today in our examination of John's first letter we shall be concentrating on verses 13 to 21. Verses 13 to 21 of John's fifth chapter, his letter. So today we're at the end of the letter. What have we learned so far? Well, we learned firstly that The apostles testified to both Jesus' divinity and his humanity. We saw that sin in us is described as threefold. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. This is how Satan takes advantage of us. We looked at what the term Antichrist means it was a term coined by John through the Spirit to describe those who deny the incarnation as we understand it. We saw that we are uh, at the same time both perfect and rotten to the core. We learned about Jesus' sacrifice and how it should inspire us to sacrifice ourselves for the brethren. We were told that doctrines must be weighed against Scripture. Doctrines must be held up to the standard of Scripture. What else? We saw our God that he is... Among other things, a God of love. And one aspect of his love is brought to its fulfillment when we show love to other people. We've been taught that Jesus Christ then has two natures the divine and the human. Although he remains as one person. We've seen Jesus presented to us then as our sacrifice and our representative in the courts of heaven. And last week, we looked at the meaning of the water and the blood, the water and the blood. And in all John's uh, teaching in this letter, he shows his care for the brethren. He also teaches them doctrine and he urges them to be What? Doers of the word and not hearers only. Doers of the word. We jump into that today then at verse 13. And we come across the principle of belief. Belief. Not just a belief in God. But particularly in Jesus Christ his son. And not just trust in Jesus but More particularly on his uh, name. His name, it's a reputation that was earned through his ministry. And that term name, it also carries with it very glorious things about the characteristics of Jesus himself. And it is not just really a belief in this name that is above every name, but a belief on his name the difference being you could perhaps theoretically have an unbeliever who could believe that Jesus existed believe that what he said is what is told us in scripture and also that he is even the saviour but they may not care they can believe that and certainly the devils believe it to the full so the difference is we believe through proper faith. It is faith. If you look, it's all over this passage. The the concepts, if you look in, in verse thirteen, you believe that you may know. Verse 14, the confidence we have in him. verse 15, we know. Verse 18, 19 and 20, we know, we know, we know. True faith is believing with complete certainty. It is trusting in Jesus Christ and all the promises that he makes. We see also at the start in verse 13 then that it talks about having knowledge of eternal life, but rather being certain of eternal life. And it is right for us to have confidence in the promise that we shall live forever. The Church of Rome's view is that to say such a thing counts as a sin of presumption. A sin of presumption. I had a conversation with a colleague many years ago now, and I thought an opportunity had arisen suitably uh, in a quiet time uh, during the working day and I just threw the question at her. Can I ask, are you a Christian? And she looked horrified and she said, how can someone ask someone else that question? How can anyone know that they are a Christian? You see, she, like most people, believed that It's not a case of, are you a Christian or are you not? No, no, they see it as a spectrum with, uh, at one end, very Christian and at the other end, not very Christian at all. And each of us sits somewhere on this spectrum according to our behaviour. Well, that is not biblical. And the reason she, the reason Rome has that faulty view is that, They assume that it's all based on works, that it is to do with what they can do to get themselves along that spectrum to the right end. Not for us, all our confidence is in Him. All our confidence is in Him. Let me read from Romans 8, verses 15 and 16. It says for ye have not received the spirit of bondage against to fear. But ye have received the spirit of adoption. Whereby we cry. Abba, Father. The spirit itself. Beareth witness with our spirits That we are the children of God. We know. we know. We know. So we. In that confidence we look forward to eternal life. We relish it. And in all confidence to. To eternal life you look in verse 14 and if I could paraphrase that opening statement it would be something like this now regarding that confidence that faith this is the type of confidence we have and what example does it use It goes on to talk about getting prayers answered we ask God He hears us, and then we get what we ask for. That is the confidence. Now, any Christian might object to that statement and say, well, you know, in my experience and the experience of everyone else I know in the church and my knowledge of church history tells me that the Christian life is full of Unanswered prayer. And so we get used to living with this, you know, this sort of, like a 10% chance that what we ask for we will get. Well, the answer to that objection is that there are conditions to pray. There are conditions. I'll give you just three of them. The first one we can read about a few chapters back, we came across this verse in chapter 3 of John's first letter, in verse 22. It says, Whatsoever we ask, we receive of him, because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. So obedience then is a requirement. I mean, to, to come to God in a state of disobedience and ask Him for something is surely the height of arrogance. You can imagine a, you can imagine a spoiled teenager swearing and shouting and uh, verbally abusing his mother and father, and then ending the tirade and then saying, oh, you, you, couldn't, ",You couldn't give me some money, could you? I, I need to go out." <laughs> yeah well you know uh, people go to God and the are disobedient it's the same thing here's another requirement finding James 1 verses 5 and 6 James 1 5 and 6 says if any of you lack wisdom let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally, and afraid that not and it shall be given him But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. So faith, faith is required. When we pray to God and we frame our prayers to make them sound good, don't forget, God can read between the lines. He hears a different prayer from the one that comes out of your mouth. So when you say, Lord, um, I'm praying for this, this spiritual thing and so on. And what God hears is, oh, well, I'm asking for this thing but, you know, maybe you will or you won't answer. Sometimes you keep your promise, sometimes you don't. And then, I don't even know if you could do this thing. It's quite hard. That's what God hears a faithless prayer. And he quite right, rightly just closes his ears to such a prayer. And this is a third condition also in James in chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 3 of James says, You ask and receive not because you ask him this. Ask amiss that you may consume it upon your lusts. So the condition is that our prayers have to be made up of holy requests. We can't just, you know, say we'd like a new car, a bigger house or something, you know. But what are of, what of what uh, are spiritual requests though? Are they always sanctified? The ones that sound churchy? They've got to be according to the word. They've got to be according to God's word. If I read Scripture that the Lord does not keep his church free from illness and disease and infirmity... If I read read in scripture that he he sends hardships in the form of ill health to his own people to try them and to force them to their knees in prayer or for some other reason. So when a believer says, Lord, I know it's your will that we should all be well, I pray therefore you'd heal the whole church of everything. Well, that, of course, would be a sinful request. Or if I read in scriptures, as I do, that the Lord has his elect and those who are not, that there is a narrow way to eternal life and few find it, and there's a broad way which leads to eternal destruction and most find it. Knowing that, why would I come out with a prayer like, Lord, save every individual in Liverpool? I pray today, Lord, in the name of Jesus, so I to save everyone by tonight. Those are the type of prayers that go on. That they go on, they happen. And you know, the are contradictory to, to the word. And so we, we, we still have to be careful if our requests are uh, outwardly anyway spiritual. So, conditions for prayer. We have to be in obedience to God. We have to pray believing. And the requests have to be Legitimate. Well, if we look in verse 16, we'll get an idea of a legitimate type of prayer from the Bible itself. And so, John has reminded us that we have this amazing privilege. A privilege that God beckons us to come to him and pray and says... Everything that you want, I've got it right here. Approach, approach me, and I'll give you this thing here. Which one do you want? Do you want this, or do you want that? It's all ready for you. And he has great storehouses of grace, and he wants to give to us. And what does John use as an example? of what we can do with that great privilege, well, we shouldn't be surprised. He says, for example, you could pray for the brethren. Of course, yeah, pray for the brethren, why not? ties in with his message of loving the brethren. And then we see our, our twofold duty towards the brethren. We help them in person, directly, and then we help them indirectly by going to God in prayer on their behalf and just to remind you you know God is uh, God is happy you know God is happy to really include us in his purposes by praising us for our victories he praises us for overcoming <laughs> in again in, in James and, and in chapter 5 there are a couple of examples James chapter 5 and verse 15 says and the prayer of faith shall save the sick and the Lord shall raise him up and if he has committed sins they shall be forgiven our prayer is accomplishing that and then in verse 20 of the same chapter let him know that he which converts the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death This is amazing, this is God saying, well done you. Well done for that thing you've just done. Well done. And then we stand there and we stand amazed as we accept God's pleasant thank yous. And then we then cast our crowns at his feet. By ascribing it all to him. The glory that came from God. Returns to him. So the content of this sort of prayer. We see a brother or sister sin. So we pray for their spiritual healing. We ask for restoration. For deliverance. God promises to give that person the spiritual life they need for this healing. So go ahead, brothers and sisters, in confidence, pray for such a thing. But with these two notes of caution. Be careful when you pray for another's sin, that your prayer is not arrogant. had the particular position that I talk on some scriptures, like the Book of Revelation. Well, I I wouldn't go to God and say, Lord, you know that you've revealed to me the true interpretation. I pray that you would destroy all these other teachings, and that's not right, is it? You know, in a, in a former church of mine, where. head covering for women was practiced. They received some lady visitors one day to their prayer meeting from another evangelical church. These ladies came from a church that took a different position on head covering, a different interpretation. And so the old man native to the church stood up in the prayer meeting and said, Lord God, I pray that you would convict these women sitting here without head, cover- without head coverings. Convict them, Lord, of their rebellion against you, I pray. Wow. So we, we can have arrogant prayers like this, you know, like the prayer of the publican in the temple. He was praying to God, he was thanking God. He was thanking God for stuff, but his prayer was wrong, it was arrogant, and a, Another, another way of caution about praying for other sins is you should ensure that you pray a hundred times more for your own sin than for the sin of others. In the same way, you should focus far more on your own sin than the sin of others. You should assume that you sin more than everyone else. Curiously, in uh, verse 16, we come across this notion of a sin that leads to death. Some situation where we're not urged to pray. That's unusual. Some sin that leads inevitably to death, presumably the second death. Something that this refers to the unforgivable sin, that if you see someone. Commit that particular sin or what you perceive as a committal of that sin, that you should immediately cease to to pray for them. Well, I respect that view, but I, I disagree with it. I'm more inclined to think that this has to do with apostasy the position of one who has professed Christ but returns to his old ways. John says I did not say that he should pray for that person. I want you to consider Jesus praying. As recorded by John. Jesus was praying to his father. And said to him. Father I don't pray for the world. I only pray for my people. Now I think it's perfectly fair to extend that. To broaden that to not just his followers in that day versus the people in the world of that day. But that it could be broadened out. And we can say that today the Lord only prays to his father or intercedes on behalf of the elect. And not on behalf of the reprobate. So, however, Jesus knew who the elect and reprobate were, hence the prayer. We don't. We don't. So this is why we have no option but to, to, to go to God in prayer on behalf of friends and relatives. And we have no idea whether they are God's elect or not. But we pray for them. Cautiously saying Lord I want you to have mercy on that person but nevertheless nevertheless not my will let your will be done but for us I mean can we ever can we ever be sure someone is reprobate well I think sometimes we can in the case of an apostate these are people who the bible describes as Dogs Returning to their own vomit. It says that they are people who. Trample Jesus' blood. Underfoot. They would have him die again. To redeem them a second time. People. Who would have been better off. Never being born. Such is the dreadful. Position of. The apostate. So who are the apostates then? Are those who profess to belong to Jesus. But then they sin brazenly. Now okay. Christians sin. Sometimes the sins of Christians. Can be quite terrible. But when a genuine believer sins. It is marked by. A repentance which follows. And it is done Despite. Their new nature. Think about Paul's description of his sin. He said, The desire to obey God and do these good things is with me today, but how to actually just go and do them, I just don't find that. I end up doing the opposite. Let me give you an example. If I said one day that Look, folks, um, I, uh, I'm really into these particular sins. X, Y, and Z. And I don't know you're shocked. They are horrible. But I'll just be honest with you. I don't really care what God thinks. I, I just don't care. And if you are concerned about that, I'm, I'm not too bothered about that either, to be honest. I want to go and do this thing. and I, I, just, I just don't care anymore about what God thinks. But Jesus thinks, you know, let him do to me what he wants. I'm going to do that thing. Such a person should be avoided. We just stay away from them. We have nothing to do with them. Ourself, we just keep ourselves by God's power. We just, we just hold on. And so there are cases perhaps that we might come across where we see someone sin so brazenly in the face of God. That it betrays their profession of faith, and we know that they are sinning a sin unto death, and we stop praying for them. And you might find that hard to accept, and we might never come across such a situation, but it is there for us to be mindful of. In verses 18, 19, and 20, as we come to the end of the letter we have a set of verses starting with we know we know you know and it, it's almost a, a mini statement of faith and here's what they state the three things that they state could perhaps be summarised like this first thing in verse 18 it speaks of our perfection in Christ our perfection in Christ Paul again said it's not me that sins it's sin lives in me it's not me in 2nd Corinthians 5 and 17 it says therefore if any man be in Christ he is a new creature a brand new creation all things are passed away behold all things have become new the true believer's desire is sinlessness the turmoil is from the, the deathly influence of your own self Versus a sanctifying effect of the Spirit. So we must encourage the Spirit. In verse 19 we can say that it's about our separation in Christ. Our separation in Christ. Because we belong to a a different family to the world. We live in a, a different country. We have different desires. We don't love this world We want it gone. We have a different prince over us. That verse can be alternately translated. The whole world lies in the power of the wicked one. That's Satan. People either have allegiance to the prince of peace. Or the prince of chaos. There is no other way. You are subject to one or the other. And in verse 20, we see the third principle. Our understanding in Christ. Our understanding in Christ. It's like we've been given this new spiritual intelligence. And it's superior to any IQ that we might have according to our nature. I mean, after all, God dispenses to his church low intelligence, average intelligence, and high intelligence and he dispenses it that way for his reasons and we're now talking about a wisdom that exceeds the wisdom of this world. Jesus said in Matthew 13 and verse 11, he said to his followers, "Because it's given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them others, it is not given. And in 2 Corinthians again, in chapter 4 and verse 6, it says, For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness had shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We know Jesus Christ is the Son of God. We know him personally as our Saviour, our friend and our brother. Jesus said that he was the way, the truth, and the life. He is the only way, because he's the redeemer of his people. And if you don't follow Jesus, you'll you'll be lost. He's the truth, it says in verse 20. Him that is true. He is all truth. And he's the life, also in verse 20. He is the life, it says there. In Jesus is found eternal life. Is this glorious message not one you want to be declared as widely as possible for as long as you live? Are you not thrilled in the least by this gospel? According to your faith, you will be moved by the very mention of the name of Jesus Christ. We must finish. John says farewell to us for now. In verse 21, he signs off in a very characteristic fashion. We've seen him swap between between warm phrases To doctrine. To hard hitting statements. And he signs off with. Little children. Who I love. Little children. Who I love. Keep yourself from idols. Keep yourself away from idols. This is meant for us. This is meant for you personally. And for me. We are to keep ourselves from anything that distracts us from the person of Jesus Christ and his service. So I pray that as we come to a close, that you might think on in the week ahead. To look to nothing else and no one else but the lovely Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.